I just want to give a preaching caveat. This is the first time I've ever preached in a t-shirt. And so uh, in no way do I mean disrespect, but to anyone who thinks that you have to wear a suit and tie, but that's not in the Bible. And we're going to a picnic today, which I had thought would be very hot. It looks pretty cold outside or, or cool for July, June. Uh, so I, I just got the weather wrong. But uh, nevertheless, so the context of this message for the last um, 10 weeks, actually I think nine, we've been going through the book of Acts and we started doing that after a series in which we covered the Apostles' Creed. Now this morning we recited the Nicene Creed and one of the reasons we, we recite that creed is because it provides in a very succinct way the elemental portions or ideas of our faith, that there is a God. I believe in God. We don't argue God's existence. We just assert, I believe in God, that he exists, and he's the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. And then we go on to talk about his son and what his son did on on the earth in demonstrating the will of God, the Father, in redeeming creation and all humanity by the work of the cross. And then we move from Jesus his son, to focusing on the Holy Spirit. And we noted throughout that entire series how that that creed, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, they, there is a progression in terms of the focus biblically of, of the Father as creator, his dealings with Israel, Jesus coming in, in the flesh, manifesting the will of God, being the Word of God incarnate, and then the Holy Spirit. And then, if you remember from this morning, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the, and I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, or the Holy Universal Church. Now, we actually don't say the word Catholic here, just to not trip anybody up who might not have time to hear an explanation, but the word Catholic just means universal. And so, when we talk about the universal church, we acknowledge that there is one body of Christians on the earth who are the people of God, the agent through which God does his work on the earth today. And we noted how after doing that series on the Apostles' Creed, we did that for a foundation of what are the elemental things of the Christian faith so that eventually, in the next few months, our church is going to turn in in a very purposeful way to a season of evangelism, both with what you heard John Gray talk about in in the vacation Bible schools, as well as after-school curriculum called WizKids, and then also what we're doing at Wright, uh, Wright State University through Rock Campus Fellowship. And the reason why we go through the elemental portions of the faith is if you don't know them, you can't help anyone come to know them. You can only give what you have, right? I, I can't give you something... Uh, that I don't have unless I first steal it or or, or obtain it. I, I can't give away uh, knowledge, spiritual blessing. I can't help you if I'm not first founded. And so that was the goal of of that series. And after that, we then celebrated the Ascension of Christ. It was that portion of the church calendar where you know Jesus is where we celebrate His Ascension. And then after that, we celebrate Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit as He's sent by Jesus. As Jesus reigns over over the nations, exalted in in the heavenlies, he sends the Holy Spirit and forms the church. And and he says to his disciples, I will not leave you, 
as orphans, I will come to you. In a very real way, through Pentecost, through the Holy Spirit, Jesus has come and makes his abode in the church. In Revelation, Jesus is named the one who walks among the seven lampstands, that is, the seven churches. And so, Jesus continues to act, and that's the that's the whole reason we're going through this book of Acts, is it, it begins with the Ascension, continues with Pentecost, and then we've been looking at, chapter by chapter, the significant things that Jesus has continued to do on the earth through his agent, the church. And so, with that, uh, the last few weeks, we've been highlighting a theme of, of this idea that when we go out in missional activity, when we go out to spread the gospel, to share the light of Christ— um, that we will encounter opposition. One of the songs we sang this morning was uh, um, Mighty to Save, and, and the bridge says, Shine your light and let the whole world see. We're singing for the glory of the risen King Jesus. Now, that song, that bridge, if you, if you may think uh, about, you may think about that bridge as if we're saying to God to shine his light. But what we really are doing, what the songwriter intended with with that song is that's a song that you and I are singing we're, together. We're hearing each other's voice. We're, it's a it's a call and response. We're talking to each other because Jesus said, "I am the light of the world." And then before he left, he said to his apostles, "You are the light of the world." The book of First John says that as he is, as he is now, as Jesus is now, which is demonstrated in Revelation one, as the King over all of the universe, as he is so are we in this life. And so, the mission of Jesus is supposed to be the mission of you. Um, so, with that in mind, we've been, we've been focusing on evangelism for the last nine weeks. And, and with that, last week and the, and the week before, we, we noted this trend in the story of the book of Acts, that there is opposition to evangelism. We saw it with Stephen, who was killed by the Pharisees for making a an authentic witness of the gospel. And we noted how the apostolic gospel had at least four things, probably more, but at least four things. One of them was a warning of judgment. And I intentionally put them in different order every time, hoping to jar your memory. A warning of judgment, that that is, Jesus said that, uh, you know, that there's, that there's a, a judgment coming against Israel through... Uh, that which would be unveiled through the Romans later. Uh, there's a warning of judgment. There is a historically informed gospel. That is, there is a gospel presented that is connected to the people of Israel through what God has done over their years. Uh, the, the defense that Peter makes in Acts 2 begins all the way with Abraham. And it continues, it, you know, it focuses on a few people. And then we see Stephen pick up the exact same pattern, and then Philip likewise. And uh, last week, we saw Peter do that with the Greeks. He, he had a, a shorter history, but it was still a historically informed gospel. So, a warning of judgment, a historically informed gospel. And then probably the most crucial aspect of the apostolic gospel is the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the only means of salvation. The phrase is, there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Today's Christianity or today's gospel, if it does not contain the exclusivity of Christ then and a warning of judgment, then there is no reason for your hearers to have any sort of uh, urgency in their resolution of what you're presenting to them that day. What I'm, what I'm saying is, if you don't demonstrate 
through the scriptures and through what God has done with Israel over the years and with the church over the last 2,000 years, if you do not demonstrate that Jesus Christ is the only way that a person may be saved, then you are giving them no hope at all. And you are only hindering them and bringing them into more spiritual confusion. Probably the, my most hated bumper sticker is, the, is that bumper. You've all seen it probably, the one that says coexist. And in that coexist bumper sticker, uh, you've got a number of different symbols, one from, I think, the Baha'i faith, which uh, is very interesting uh, religion if you've never heard of it, uh, Islam, Buddhism, Taoism, uh, Judaism, they have a David star there, so uh, rabbinic Judaism, and then a cross. Now, um, a person who's been educated in worldviews will, will simply look at that bumper sticker and, and probably laugh or maybe cry. I don't know what your experience will be. But the reason why is because those religions cannot exist because religion, that is worldviews, are all total worldviews. There is no room in evolutionary biology that is social, you know, Darwinism. Uh, my dad was speaking on social Darwinism this morning, but there's no room in Darwinism to also assert that you're created in the image of God. It, it is a total claim uh, ideology. All ideologies are total claim ideologies. That is, there's no room in Islam for Jesus to be the Son of God because they assert and believe and defend that Jesus was only a prophet. And so, if, if Jesus is only a prophet, then all of his gospel attestations to be the Son of God are heresy in their eyes, and that Jesus should have been killed, and not killed for, the, for any sort of atonement reason, but rather because he was uh, speaking uh, blasphemy against God. Same thing with Buddhism. There's no point for Buddhism to be on that coexist sticker because they, you know, if you ever have studied Buddhism, it is a religion of self-denial, whereas Christianity is a religion of self-pleasing uh, and delighting in God. Uh, Buddhism seeks to rid yourself of material possessions, and God in the incarnation of Jesus Christ demonstrated that the physical world was originally created good, and he wants it back through the redemption that Jesus brought about at the cross. So all religions are total ideologies. They're, they are total claim systems of thought. And so when you bring a gospel that contains that third aspect of the apostolic faith, the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the only means of salvation, you will offend people, and rightly so, because it's an offensive idea. To the, to the natural thinking man. So, with that being said, if we're going to go do this vacation Bible school, if we're going to go to Wright State University, we better be equipped. And while we're being equipped, we should take note of the threats of, of those who might oppose us. So in this chapter, the, the, that's the context for all that we're doing today. This chapter presents uh, a opposition to what Peter had done in going to Cornelius's house, and uh, I think we're going to look at four different uh, aspects of this chapter. One is the idea of embracing accusation. That is, rather than simply uh, objecting, we we should rather receive our accusers in such a way that we might be winsome to some of them. The second idea is this idea of team ministry. This is one of the core cultures of our church, is that not a single person is the main star or, or the main guy who does the work of the church. 
Paul said that God, Jesus, gave gifts to men as he ascended, and those gifts were the five distinctions of ministry in the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Most of us have, we've heard messages about how, you know, you can have aspects of all five in your own life or whatever. I don't want to go there. I want to focus on the next phrase. He gave those five things for the building up of the saints, for the work of the ministry. That is the reason why we have apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Shepherds, you can swap out the word pastor. So the reason why God gave gifts, special office distinctions to men in the church that that fulfill their role is for one purpose alone, for the building up of you so that you would do the work of the ministry, not for the building up of Paul so that he would do the work of them, although he did. He was, a, he was an evangelist and an apostle, and, it, and all of his letters have a very pastoral focus because, you know, it's our our faith is about compassion. It's hard to have an apostle that's not also pastoral in his focus. But the point of God's gifting to the church is for the building up of a team of people, a community of people who disciple, rather than individual superstars. So uh, we're also going to look at this idea of the humble questions that we bring to our accusers. That is, someone brings an accusation, and we some somehow attempt to pull the rug out of their feet, if you will. And then finally, this idea of going all in. That is, these these disciples that we see who are, are sacrificing and giving, they're just totally into whatever God's doing in the moment. So, many times when we are uh, in the world, we think of, of the Christian cause as a, um, a, a war against the opposing culture. In fact, this is highlighted by the fact that um, Bill O'Reilly wrote a book called The Culture Wars, which was an, one of the number one uh, bestsellers on the New York Times for years. Uh, I think the last two years it's been on that list. But this book is basically about uh, a clash of ideologies, and, and he gets it to some extent. There is an ideology between the Judeo-Christian worldview and a secular progressive worldview, i.e. the culture war, as in, you know, liberalism, uh, Darwinism, ex- certain universities, psychological theories are opposing certain aspects of Judeo-Christian worldview, a uh, focus uh, on the elemental unit of society called the family, uh, things like this. And there's a, a war that's going on. Most recently, this last week, the Supreme Court decided that the Defense of Marriage Act was an unconstitutional thing. And what what is so important about that decision from the Supreme Court um, is during the in the dissenting opinions that the justices wrote, they said that the the Supreme Court in that case had no legal standing to decide that case because there was no opposition of parties. The uh, the lower court there was an appeal for them to affirm the decision of the of the lower court and the supreme court effectively said that the legislative body and the executive branch that is the the congress who wrote that defense of marriage act and the president who signed it both acted unconstitutionally now what you've got going on there is you've got one branch of government saying the other two branches of government didn't didn't operate correctly and that's never a good case whether one side is right or one side's wrong. But no matter what your opinion of of the constitutionality of the Defense of Marriage Act, it is 
easy to see the the kind of popular Christian response. You know, the Supreme Court is uh, persecuting Christianity. We're we're and and you know to to one extent, rightly so. But over and over again, we see examples of the church getting it wrong. I'm reminded of of various uh, things that happened through the 90s, where instead of embracing our accusers and and seeking to win them over through both uh, a logical res- uh, appeal to the gospel as well as um, you know moralistic arguments or or philosophical arguments, we simply raise up a flag of persecution. And we, you know, we, we just kind of, we squawk at every minor setback. Now, I believe the Defense of Marriage Act is not uh, being declared unconstitutional, is not good for our country, but I'm not going to go ahead and say that it's like martyrdom, okay? That's what I'm saying, is, is every single uh, minor thing that happens on the, the national scale in the media we Christians have a tendency to blow it out of proportions, and and uh, while we're trying to see culture preserved, we're not still focusing on reaching culture with the gospel. We just want things to kind of stay as they are. Maybe go back to the moralism of the '90s that we had, and um, you know, for things to just chill out. And and so, anytime something bad happens, we just you know we we flip out. Now. I uh, I think this is wrong, and I think that we should imitate Christ in what he did at, in going to the cross. He prayed to the Father, and he said, Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. And he saw that the will of the Father was not for that cup to pass, but rather for Christ to take that cup, cup of wrath and drink it. And And rather than throwing up a flag of persecution and objection and pain, Jesus embraced the Father's will, and went through the cross. And likewise, we, we have to be ready to do this when we are going to share the gospel. You have to be ready for people to bring persecution on you, whether it's uh, a social persecution, you're, you're, out, you're outed out of a circle of friends, or you're pushed out of a, a job or, or something like this, or it's physical persecution. Or at the very least, it'll be ridicule and mocking. You need to be ready for it. And I think you can be ready for it by seeing what Christ did in the in going to the cross. So it says uh, what happened with the Judaizers in Acts eleven two through three, which we had already read. So Peter went up to Jerusalem. The circumcision party crucified or uh, criticized him, saying, "You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them." Now, if you remember from last week, Peter had mentioned to Cornelius and the people at his house, it was unlawful for the Jews to go and fellowship with the, with the Gentiles. And so Peter is being criticized by these religious hypocrites, these Judaizers, these people who said the gospel has come and Christ atoned for us and satisfied all of the requirements of the law, and yet we should still subject these other Christians to external forms of religion and not caring at all about the internal motive of their heart or the, the actions of their life. And so these, these Judaizers come and say, they accuse Peter saying, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. And so Peter faces this accusation from the Judaizers and he mentioned earlier, as we just had remembered that it was unlawful. He was not allowed to go and spend time with the Gentiles. And yet, what these Judaizers are saying, even though it is accurate, 
it is not truthful in that they're accusing Peter of sin, and Peter is going to demonstrate that it was all God's doing. This is what happened with the Pharisees and Christ. It's the same story retold. A disciple is not above his teacher. This is Jesus teaching his apostles in the context of sending them to the lost uh, sheep of Israel. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher. That is, it's good for you apostles to become like me in your living and your mission. It's enough for the disciples to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. It is If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, that is, Satan, how much more will they malign those of his household? See, the, the Pharisees, because every religion is a total claim ideology, when they saw Jesus demonstrating that the power of God through his, his activity, the only opportunity they had was to call him uh, a person who does these things by Satan. That is, the Pharisees accused Jesus of doing miracles, signs, and wonders by the power of Satan, the power of the evil one, not the power of God. And so, likewise, these Judaizers come and say, Peter, you're acting in sin. And so, we should expect this to occur. And in our expectation, we should also be ready to embrace it and to turn the other cheek, if you will. Peter doesn't argue with them. He doesn't object to what they say. It says, it's, it's almost like a moment of clarity and turning in Peter's decision to respond to them and how he responds to them. It says in Acts 11.4, but Peter began and explained it to them in order. He laid it out exactly as it had happened without any sort of embellishing or attempts to loosen the words or, or pull punches. Peter just lays it out. Here's what happened. I went to Joppa and then, you know, I was taken to the Cornelius's house and the Holy Spirit told me to go. These other guys came with me and we, you know, we just did what God had told us to do. And so there's absolutely no sin in what Peter was doing, even though they were accusing him of sin. And he does not respond in a fleshly way. He doesn't deny their accusation. He rather presents the truth of the account as it plainly happened. So likewise, we're going to face uh, accusations as we witness, and there will be people who don't like what you're doing. There will be parents who don't like what you're doing for their children. There will be children who don't really want to obey you while they're uh, at the event. There will be people at Wright State who don't understand what our purpose is there. There will be people who call you names and they will ridicule you. And if it gets really out of hand, you might, you know, encounter some sort of physical persecution, but you should be ready for it because Jesus says that it's going to happen. You should imitate Peter and give a spirit-led defense in a winsome tone. That word winsome means exactly what it says, in a way that would win some of the people who you're talking to. That's, that's the point of using uh, a clear, explicit history-informed gospel, is it's very hard to argue with history. It's, it's easy to argue uh, with, is there a God or is there not a God? How do we know? We can't see him. But it's very hard to argue with the demonstration of Yahweh as the only God through what he's done in history with the Israelites. So this idea of team ministry, it's a core culture uh, in our church. But the idea is that you are not going out as a lone ranger, and you're not going off on your own, and you're not going without someone sending you. There are so many people out there 
in the church today who have no spiritual covering and they're trying to start churches or they're leading Bible studies and they have no one who they're accountable to. It is a very dangerous thing to ever be in a scenario like that. Um, our church, for example, we're not part of a denomination, but there are people that we're uh, associated with called the Alliance for Renewal Churches. And those people give oversight and make sure that the elders of this church, Jason Hale, myself, my, my father, Greg in the back, uh, we're not just doing whatever we want. We're actually teaching biblical things. They review our teaching. They review our life. They come in fellowship with us. We have connection with them. We're not lone rangers. And so in Peter's defense, he, he kind of points this out to these Judaizers. He says, you're accusing me of sin, but what I did was actually God-ordained and not at all my design. And so in Acts 11, 12, he says, and the Spirit told me to go with them. Me as Peter in the sentence. The Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction between the, the Gentiles and the Jews. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered this man's house. Now, notice that Peter isn't saying, I noticed this community was neglected, and I was burdened with a, you know, I had a burden from the Lord, and I went and, you know, ruined my life going and starting an unaffected ministry. Peter isn't saying that. He's saying that the Holy Spirit and these other six brothers all went with me. The, the Holy Spirit told me to go, and he accompanied me, and... These other six guys, so if you're going to get mad at me, you know, we'll all hang together. Uh, these other six brothers who are stable, you know, respected men in the community, they also decided it was good to not go against God's word in preference to man's law. Because God didn't tell the Israelites that you weren't allowed to hang out with Gentiles. That was their creation of, of exclusivity. That was them exalting themselves as God's chosen people rather than recognizing that God chose them not apart from, or apart from what they had done without any distinction or, or sort of preference. He, he didn't choose Israel because they were the greatest nation. He chose them because they were nothing. They were slaves in Egypt when God, you know, revealed that the promise of Abraham would come through them and, and he chose them. They, they had absolutely no reason to exalt themselves as the special religious people of the world and everyone else is an unwashed mass who we can't associate with. And so Peter's defense follows this pattern. It's established in the, the law and the prophets that every fact will be confirmed by two or three witnesses. That's a, it's a clear apostolic, he's basically saying, what I did was in line with the foundations of the faith and I did it in a way that pleases God. So as we go into this season of ministry, we're going as a group. And as we're going as a group, that means I'm not going to be the rock star. Uh, you're not going to be the rock star. We're going as a team. Yes, there will be offices. There will be a director who will tell people what to do. There will be people who get told what to do. And that's okay. We're not saying by saying that we're going as a group that everyone has the same role. There are different roles, but there is no role called no nothing. There isn't an option for you as a member of this church in the next season to just sit by while everybody else does the work that we feel God's calling us to do. You, it, at the very least, we need prayer to surround this effort, and we need people who are going to study over the next few weeks and, and get trained on how to share the gospel with people at Wright State. We just need it. And the reason why is because 
each one of, again, each one of the elders of this church has a job. Uh, my job's usually 50 to 60 hours. Um, sometimes it's a little less, but, you know, Jason's got a full-time job. He's also getting an MBA. My dad has a financing company. We, we need people to assume practical roles of learning how to share the gospel with other people. And you can be part of that. But I don't believe that Christ has in his will for your life as a member of this church, any room for somebody who doesn't want to do anything. Now, I'm not telling you to leave if that's where your heart is. What I'm saying is you should get before God and ask him to change your heart concerning that issue. I, I need to come and be a part of this because Jesus said it's more blessed to give than receive. And he also mentions over and over again, Sermon on the Mount and other places in the Gospels, that you will be blessed when you're persecuted for great is your reward in heaven. It's in your best interest to get involved. So this idea that Peter um, is acting in team, that's great. But how does he totally disarm the religious opposition uh, that comes against him in this chapter? He continues to tell the account, and then he says those who believed at Cornelius's house, not only receive the gospel, but are now demonstrated by receiving the gospel as disciples of the Lord. In Acts eleven fifteen through 16, he says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them. So he kind of, he, he's not blaming God in what happened. He's just kind of demonstrating again, this wasn't just me. I can't make the Holy Spirit fall. And he, you know, the, the Judaizers who said, you sinned in going to these people, you have to be wrong because sin is opposition to God's will, and God decided to bless this endeavor. The Holy Spirit fell on them just as, it, as on us at the beginning. Sidebar for a moment, the reason this is appropriate to us, whether you uh, identify with the story or not, is that there are divisions in humanity today. Black against white, young against old, homosexual versus heterosexual, rich versus poor, rich who are white versus poor who are white, and rich who are black versus poor who are black. There are divisions everywhere. Uh, I heard a comment the other day that someone was angry with, thank God it wasn't in our church, but they were angry with how many Mexicans were, were starting to come into the neighborhood. I don't even know if they're all Mexican. They're all just, you know, they're probably Hispanic, but maybe from a different, you know, country. But this guy was just totally abhorrent. It, it, this idea that that more people from a Hispanic background would come to our neighborhood. There are wars of race that happen, and there will be people who don't like the fact that by going and carrying on a, a vacation Bible school or going to Wright State, you're entering into their culture. I'm not a Wright State student. I'm going to Wright State to share the gospel. Somebody there is probably mad that I'm there and not a Wright State student. There are people who are going to be opposed to what you're doing and why you're doing it and how you're doing it and who you are and who they are. They're going to not like you. And so this story, although we're not, you know, we're not the apostles living in Jerusalem and there's no literal Judaizers around us, this story still has massive application to us. So Peter's defense continues, as I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, what Peter's doing is he's saying, Jesus told us this would happen. But who did he tell? He told the disciples, that is the 12, 
you know, the 12 apostles, he told them that they would be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So what does he do in saying that these people who were at Cornelius's house also received the Holy Spirit? Well, he's implying that these people not only heard the gospel, but now they're on equal standing. That is, they're part of the same community as the disciples. These are no longer Gentiles. These are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ who came, as he said, to come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so there's, we're already beginning to see what we'll see later in Paul's writings, is that there's a breakdown of Jew and Gentile distinction. That was the focus of last week's meth- message. There's a breakdown of the, the opposition that man tries to create between other men. It's a, it's an absolutely amazing tactic that Peter uses. If you ever went to Dominion Academy, perhaps you heard Sandy McNamara describe this method as the Columbo method. Uh, the Columbo method is is from a show. Peter Falk is a is a old actor. It's a great show. Go hang out with my dad. He'll he'll give you a copy. Uh, but in the show, Peter Falk Columbo, he does he. Uh, He's a detective, and he uses this amazing technique of working with the prime suspect to uncover who the real, uh, the real um, uh, criminal is, that is, the person who carried out that evil action. And, and what he does is he works with them all the time, playing the role of a wise fool. As in, he, he asks questions, but he plays dumb the entire time, leading the, the criminal to eventually sort of reveal their hand, if you will. And Peter Falk just kind of asks them questions and then eventually, you know, says, well, what I don't understand is, you know, if, you're, if your brother lent you the car, then you're, you know, whatever, this, whatever the scenario is. But he, dece- he, he doesn't deceive, but he disarms his opponent or the, the prime suspect. He disarms them by playing to their ego. And this is what Peter does. In Acts eleven seventeen, he says, If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus. Notice he says believed, not totally completed the law. He says, When we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? He basically asked the question, Judaizers, if you're so wise, could you explain to me what I should have done? Should I have objected to God Almighty and said, No, Holy Spirit, don't fall go back up, uh, don't baptize these new believers. Peter basically says to the Judaizers, who am I to stand in God's way? And there's an absolutely perfect implication in this question. If who am I to stand in God's way? You're coming here and accusing me of sin. Who are you to stand in God's way? What are you doing asking me these questions? It's, it's an amazing tactic. And what it does is beautiful. Now, doubtless, there's going to be people who say to us, why are you coming to this neighborhood? Why are you helping these people who probably in all, in all realistic uh, understanding of this neighborhood are going to be poor or, or, you know, poorer or whatever, or broken homes, whatever you want to be called. I mean, I lived in this neighborhood and, and I didn't have a broken home. So, but by and large, it's probably the case that people will think you're coming to the inner city. You're crazy. That's where poor people live or something like that. People might say that. And what you do is you disarm them and say, Jesus said that he didn't come for those who were whole. He came for those who were sick. And so who am I to object to God's pattern? 
And therefore, who are you to think it's wrong to go to the least of these, as Jesus calls them? At the same time, this humble question will totally disarm, as it will also demonstrate the righteousness of your activity. And this is the fruit in Acts eleven eighteen. When they heard these things, the Judaizers, when the Judaizers heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, their admission of that is a major development in the religious activity in Jerusalem after Christ had ascended. The, the Judaizers saying that it's now clear to us through what happened with not only uh, earlier with the Samaritans receiving the Holy Spirit, but now with the Gentiles receiving the Holy Spirit, what is coming to pass or what, what is happening is the fulfillment of what Jesus said in Acts 1.8, before his ascension, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, the region around Jerusalem, and then to the utmost parts of the earth. The book of Acts, as we've been focusing in this series, is the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy in Acts 1.8. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. With the Gentiles receiving the Holy Spirit, Jesus is vindicated both as the Son of God and the greatest prophet that ever lived because he foretold what would take place surrounding a major religious transition um, that would then birth the church. So, we're going to end with this this idea of going all in. Uh, after Peter gets done with this um, scenario, the Judaizers kind of lay off for a while. But um, it's going to happen again to the Christians. It's going to happen again in the future. When Jesus calls you, he wants all of you. He doesn't want part of your life. He wants everything. And in so doing, in, in calling you, Again, we, we mentioned earlier at the beginning, every claim, every religious claim is a total claim ideology. It's an ideology that demands everything. And Jesus, being the true faith, the true, the one who is faithful and true, he is desiring all of you. He doesn't want part of your life. He doesn't want you to worship him on Sundays and maybe on Wednesday night, and then the rest of the week live as if you don't know God. He doesn't want you to be a rich person without compassion to the poor because you believe in some variant of capitalism that is really greed. He, he doesn't want just part of your life. He wants all of your life because he purchased it all. He gave it all on the cross, and so he demands everything. And following Jesus Christ is not about getting a life of security. This isn't really, I mean, we want better marriages, but this isn't seven steps to a better marriage. That's not why you follow Jesus. You follow Jesus because he, on the cross, paid for your debt that you owed against God by sinning against him. And not only has Jesus paid for your debt, but he also has empowered you by his spirit to live a life that is washed through the waters of baptism and risen with Christ, filled with the spirit and renewed in the image of God, to be the demonstration of God's love on the earth. That's the purpose of your life, and he wants all of it. So it's not about certainty. It's not, you know, Jesus didn't say to the uh, the disciples, follow me, and I'll make sure that at the end of this thing, you have a really cool 401k with 3.3% employer matching or, or whatever. I'm not against 401ks. I've got one. I'm not saying don't get a 401k. I'm saying that Jesus demands everything in your life. He doesn't say to you when he calls you to follow him that it's going to be an easy ride. In fact, if anything is more clear in the Gospels 
it is this that the gospel the the Christ following life the disciple life the life of following Jesus is a life of hardship and suffering not without reward but oftentimes without seeing the reward in your lifetime Matthew 10:34 through 37 Jesus says do not think that I come to bring peace on the earth I have not come to bring peace but a sword for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. It's often the case that the hardest place to be a Christian is in the context of either unbelieving children or an unbelieving spouse or unbelieving parents. That is probably the most difficult place to live out your Christianity. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What Jesus is saying is, that the, the claim that he has on your life when he calls you to follow him is deeper than biological ties of familial relationships. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. That is, if you're living a so, so-called Christian life and you're skating through it, not ever taking up your cross, not ever sacrificing, then that is fruit, that is, de- that is the demonstration that you are not living in a, in a way that is worthy of the calling, as Paul says. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's exactly opposite of the worldly, uh, of the worldly mentality. You know, the first thing that we do in, in securing our future is to set up provisions of safety and, and finance and, and friendship and in order to build up our life. But Jesus says, if you give it away, you'll find it. And this is what happens with the apostles. The next portion of this story of the church teaches us a great truth about the foundation of Christianity and its total claims. In Acts 11, um, 19 through 21, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen— that was two weeks ago for us, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Now, that makes sense based on what they had previously thought in the earliest, or earlier portion of this chapter. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that is the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, why is this an amazing thing? Why does it demonstrate the amazing total claim of Christianity? The Christians who fled from Jerusalem, the persecution that arose over Stephen, they were being killed. They were being removed from their houses, illegal search and seizure, and put into jail. And yet it says when they got to another city, they started proclaiming the word again. They didn't renounce their faith at all. The pers- fleeing from Jerusalem because of the persecution wasn't turning in fear. It was a strategy to get out and to continue to spread the word as much as they could before the religious zealots caught up with them. They had a much better motive than renouncing the faith or turning or seeking their own life. Why, why is it that they were still preaching? Well, it was clear they could not stop speaking what they had seen and heard. They absolutely couldn't do it. And they couldn't deny the Lord Jesus Christ because of this. They had already bet the farm, if you will. Now, my analogy with, with going all in, if you've ever played poker, there's a scenario that happens when you have uh, been playing for a while. You might have only a few chips left or, or tokens or whatever you use to play. Uh, and at some point, there is a hand which you're either going to be out of the game 
or you're going to win it. And this idea is you can't pay the total amount to keep uh, the cycle of, of wagers, and so you go all in. This idea is you push all your chips into the table and say, I'm betting on this hand or else I'm done. These Christians had totally done that. They had gone all in. They were totally confident that what they were doing with Christianity, that is following Jesus, was the only way forward. And it's demonstrated further. And one of them named Agabus, a prophet who came to Antioch, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over all the world. This is basically Egypt and Joseph again. This would take place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. This is counter-worldly wisdom. This is the market's going down, sell everything, store up grain, shut down the farm operation because next year you're going to lose your seat anyway, hold on as much as you can, uh, you know, retrieve all the land that you've lent to other people, you're going to need it. That would be the worldly action in a financial crisis. This, this famine that was going to take place was going to wipe out people's lives, homes, estates, etc. And what do the Christians do in that moment? They remember the words of Jesus saying, is not a, a sparrow sold for two cents. Likewise, even one of these doesn't fall to the ground without your Father in heaven seeing. And so, what, he, what, he, what these Christians do is they, they say, no, we believe Jesus that there will be provision for us. There will be some sort of help, and the Judean Christians need us, need, they need our money more than we need it right now. They totally go all in in the midst of this situation. So they've got nothing left to lose. They're totally confident in this winning hand that, that Jesus is a firm foundation and their hope is sure in him and that they're going to come out okay. Again, this is counter-worldly wisdom. This is an idea of, I'm only betting on Christ. He is my only hope. I have no other hope beside him. I have, e even my material possessions cannot help me. This famine is going to be extreme, so we should give our money. We should give our money to help these other Christians. It's an amazing, it's an amazing thing that takes place, and it demonstrates the fruit of a life totally sold out, sold out to Jesus. Now, I'm not saying you need to sell everything to demonstrate that you love Jesus. If you love Jesus and this scenario happens, what you do will will be fruit of what's going on in your heart. But but Paul also says that we should imitate the faith of him and the other leaders. In the book of Hebrews, it says to imitate uh, the leader or uh, imitate your religious leader's uh, lifestyle. That is to to see the example that's set forth in the church and to imitate it in a way that you bring glory to God. It's not inauthentic. It's not uh, a, a fleshly thing to imitate the uh, the fathers of the faith, if you will. So uh, not only do they face persecution, but they also face a famine. But they act in faith, and this is the confidence they have. They can witness in the face of violent opposition, and they can give extravagantly in the midst of a famine, a total economic disaster. And this is the type of faith that I hope to be in my heart and into your, in, in your heart as we go to these neighborhoods and as we go to Wright State in the next few months. And so I'm, I'm calling you to hear Christ as he calls you 
when he says to you, come follow me and, and to give him everything, to not at all hold something back for yourself, your future, your money, your family, everything belongs to him. He gave an ultimately total sacrifice on the cross. And so he has claimed to you totally. With that, let's take communion.